Well, good morning. It is good to be with you today. Good to be back here. I think it's been uh, almost a year, uh, something like that, uh, since I've been here. And it's always good uh, to be at Berlin. Uh, I want to take you back in time to 1995. I- I've been blessed over the years. Uh, I was on a mission board for 25 years, and I've been able to do a lot of traveling with that mission. And I, I've been to Africa 13 times, and Thailand, Cambodia, Afghanistan, Haiti, Mexico. And, and I, I, I remember my first trip to Congo. Uh, it was uh, my first time to Africa, and our kids were young. Uh, I think they were 12, 10, and 7. And I knew that this was different than just going to Florida. Now, we thought it would be safe. There was a, a civil war uh, that was going on, but we thought it would be safe. And uh, at the same time, I knew something could happen. And so I, I wanted to have a conversation with each one of my kids. And I, I took them all out separately, individually, for a meal. And then I talked to them. And, and I didn't talk to them about keeping their room picked up or doing their homework. I wanted to talk about important things. If something did happen, I wanted them to be able to look back and say, I remember this conversation that I had with Dad. Now, the rest of the story, there were three of us that went, and one, a week after we got back, died of cerebral malaria. Uh, the other was in the hospital with malaria, and I was the only one that didn't get malaria. So it could have happened, but um, th- those final conversations, anytime you have a final conversation with someone, it's imper- important. Final words. They're very important. And so today we're going to look at, at some final words of Jesus, at least final words as he hung on the cross with the conversation that he had. And, and every word in the Bible is inspired. Uh, God's word, there's nothing in there by accident. There's something that we can gain from every sentence, every paragraph, every word, and especially those that if you have a Bible that has the red, Jesus Uh, words in red, you want to pay particular attention to those. So let's dive in and look at our passage for today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 3, and we're going to look at verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal, don't you fear God, he said, or under the same sentence? We are punished just for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The, the picture we have in this passage is a picture that we're very familiar with. It's Jesus being crucified, and he's in the middle, and you've got the two thieves on either side. And one of the thieves began to kind of mock him. You know, and, and, and almost insult him at, hey, you, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. And the other man turned his attention to Jesus and, and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That, that's always amazed me. Because we don't know of any time where this man had interaction with Jesus before, and yet he asked, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He could not have understood the kingdom of God. He couldn't have understood the kingdom that Jesus came to establish because you think about his disciples, they had traveled with him day in and day out for three years. They didn't understand. They still thought it was going to be this earthly kingdom. But here this thief on the cross says, 
remember me. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, or truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So let's look at a couple of lessons that, that we can uh, glean from this passage. The first is we, we see a review of Jesus' purpose. His final words are really important because they really take us back to his, his first words. Back in Luke 5, Jesus began calling his disciples, and one of the guys that he called to follow him was a, a tax collector named Levi. We, we know him as Matthew. And he came to his tax collector's booth, and he stopped. Now, those who were already with Jesus, you know, they were expecting a Messiah. They thought he might be the Messiah, and they were expecting a Messiah who would set up an earthly kingdom. And so maybe they thought when he stopped at this tax collector's booth, this man who would have been considered a traitor because he collected the money for, for the Romans who oppressed them, maybe they thought, today the revolution begins. Today, Jesus is going to go up and he's going to kick over the tax collector's booth and say, we've had enough. No more. The new kingdom starts today. But that's not what he did. He just stopped and looked at this Levi, Matthew, and he said, follow me. Which was an invitation for Levi to become a part of his group. Not the kind of man that most people would have picked to be a part of Jesus' crew, his disciples, but it's who Jesus called. Now let's hit the pause button here for a moment. Let, let's consider what Jesus did, or, or maybe let's consider what Jesus did not do. Jesus didn't make a sign and picket or protest. He didn't organize a boycott. He didn't write a letter to the editor. If it was today, he didn't get on Facebook and blast the evil of the tax collector. He took a guy who was far from God and he invited him to come hang out with him. And he loved him. I've got to believe there's a lesson in there for us. That's what Jesus did. The religious leaders of the day must have thought it was interesting because we read they took note of who Jesus called and who he hung out with. And later in the passage, we see that Levi did get up from his tax booth and he turned back, he turned his back on his old way of life. And he followed Jesus. He became one of the disciples. And we read that Jesus and the other disciples went to Levi's house for dinner. Now, let's take a look at what the dinner party would have looked like. In verses 29 and 30, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Do you see what Levi did? He invited, he, he, he followed Jesus, but he said, hey, I want my friends to meet you as well. And so he threw this dinner party, and there were other tax collectors there, and there were other, what the Pharisees called, sinners. And if you read through the Gospels, you know those sinners are probably not just other tax collectors, but maybe prostitutes and thieves and scam artists. They were the low of the low, lowest of the low in the eyes of the Pharisees. But they were the ones who were there. And the Pharisees didn't like it, and they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overheard the question, and he gave this answer in verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, 
but the sick. I have not come to call right the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, in his response, is basically saying, this is my mission, this is my purpose, this is my work. This is why I came. Not to call the righteous, and, and he's talking to the Pharisees. I wonder if maybe he used the, the air quotes, because they thought they were righteous, and they really weren't. I've, I haven't called to, come to call the righteous. I've come to call the sinners to repentance. I've come to seek and save those who were lost. It's like Jesus looked around at the people who were gathered and said, these are my people. They're why I came. This is what it's all about. And again, Jesus' purpose or his work was to seek and save the lost, to take people who were living far from God and bring them into a saving relationship with God that not only would impact their life here, but would lead to eternal life in heaven. That's how Jesus' ministry began. And that's what we see day in and day out for the next three years. It's what we see when Jesus talked with the woman at the well who had been married five times and the guy she was with currently was not her husband. It's what we see when Jesus saved the life of the woman who was caught in adultery and was about to be stoned. It's what we see when Jesus stopped and he, he talked and he touched and he healed lepers who had been outcast, cast out from society. It's what we see when Jesus cast out demons. And I would suggest that when Jesus hung on a cross just moments before death, and the sinner, this thief who was hanging beside him said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, I can almost picture Jesus looking over at him and saying, remember you, you're why I came. You're what it's all about. My friends, please know this. Over 2,000 years later, Jesus looks at you and me, and he says the same thing. You're the reason I came, because I want you to spend eternity in heaven with me. So we see a reminder of, of Jesus' purpose, his work. He came to seek and save those who were lost. We also see a reminder of Jesus' promise. Let's look again what Jesus said. Uh, truly, truly I tell you, or I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. My guess is if there's one verse that is probably the best known verse in the Bible, it's John three sixteen that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he talked about eternal life. Three years go by, and as Jesus is sharing a final meal with his disciples, he reminds them of that, that promise. Let's look at, take a look at what he told them in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house were many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. When you read through the Gospels, you, you read a lot about eternal life and my Father's house and paradise. Those are, are, are places Jesus is promising that when we follow him, that we will spend eternity in, in a really good place. And it, it can be eternal life or my Father's house or paradise. I read not too long ago that 
paradise is wherever God dwells with his people. But it's not the eternal life that matters most. Let's look at John 14 again and then Luke 23 and see a common denominator. In John 14, to his disciples, he said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. I will take you to be with me. And then to the thief on the cross, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me. I would submit to you that's the important promise that we will be with Jesus forever. Now what is that going to look like? What is heaven going to be like? Would you like to know what I believe heaven is going to be like? Well, let me set the bar low and let you know I don't know. Aren't you really glad you came today? I, I don't know what heaven's going to be like for sure, but there are some things I do know. I, I, I've done a lot of funerals in the last 43 years, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll be talking to a family of someone who's passed away, and they describe heaven as whatever their loved one liked to do. You know, if the person liked to garden, oh, I can just see her up in the gardens of heaven right now. If they like to fish, I, I can just see him fishing on a lake in heaven right now. I was meeting with a family one time, and they said, Oh, I can just see him playing golf up in heaven right now. And I said, I I don't think there's going to be golf in heaven. And they looked at me and they said, why not? And I said, well, I don't think there's going to be cussing in heaven, so I'm not sure there can be golf in heaven. I I don't know for sure what heaven's going to be like, but here's some things that, that we can know. First, heaven's going to be a beautiful place. We can know that. It's going to be a beautiful place. When our kids were very young, we stayed in a motel for the first time. And, and just to let you know the big spender I am, it was a Motel 6. And I remember unlocking the door and opening the door, and my wife and I looked around the room and then looked at each other like, what have we done? The four walls had four different kinds of wallpaper. They did not match. But our son, who was about three, ran into the room. He's so excited. First time he'd ever been to a hotel. And he said, it's got two beds. It's got a TV. He picked up the phone. It's got a phone. He ran in the bathroom and came out and said, it's got soaps. And he was so excited. A few months later, we went to a, a convention down in Louisville, Kentucky. And we we're going to stay at the Executive Inn, which is a pretty nice hotel. And all the way to Louisville, the kids were asking questions like, is it like the Motel 6? Will it have two beds like the Motel 6? Will it have a TV like the Motel 6? Will it have a pool like the Motel 6? And they couldn't think of anything better than the Motel 6. And I kind of think that's the way we're going to be when it comes to describing, or we are when it comes to describing or picturing heaven. We tend to use words and pictures that we can relate to in an attempt to try to describe the indescribable. Let's take a look at how Revelation 21 describes heaven. We read, the wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. It sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But here's what I believe. 
I believe that when we get to heaven, those terms that we can understand that make us think, man, heaven's going to be beautiful, compared to whatever we can picture, heaven's going to make that picture look like the Motel 6. It's going to be a beautiful place. Second, it's going to be a, a perfect place. We're going to have perfect bodies. We read this in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Man, I'm looking forward to that. We will have bodies, but they will be perfect. No more hearing aids or glasses, arthritis, wheelchairs, walkers. No more diabetes, no more Alzheimer's, no more cancer. Heaven's going to be a perfect place. And part of what makes it perfect is what is not going to be there. And Revelation 21 gives us another picture of that. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Doesn't that sound good? And I'll tell you what, the older I get, the more aches and pains I get. We, we just, five, five and a half years ago, my wife and I thought we were being smart, so we downsized. We sold a house that was a little bit bigger. We downsized. We bought a, a brand new duplex that had just been built. No maintenance. We thought, this is a smart thing to do. We're smart people. We just sold that, and we bought 10 acres out in the country with an old farmhouse. <laughs> I'm not sure we're smart people. And the house had to be pretty well gutted and renovated, and we're in the process of that now. Uh, we're living with our kids and two grandkids. Uh, our four-year-old granddaughter crawled up in my lap a couple of weeks ago, and she said, Papa, where have you been? I said, I've been working on the farmhouse, trying to get ready to move in. She said, but I want you to live here forever. I said, yeah, you probably ought to talk to your daddy about that. <laughs> but we'll be out there working, and it's about a nine-mile drive back to our kid's house. And I got to be honest with you, there are days I open that door, and it's all I can do to get out of the car. I'm tired. I'm sore. I ache. But there will be a day in heaven that there will be no more sickness or aches or pains or death. And part of the reason heaven is going to be a perfect place is because of what will not be there. The next picture we have here, heaven will be a permanent place. It'll be a permanent place. No matter how good life here might be or how long we might live, this life is only temporary. And here's what I've learned. One of the hardest words in the world is the word goodbye. It's hard to say goodbye, isn't it? We've had four ministries in four different churches before I started working at Lincoln. And, and saying goodbye to people that we had come to know and love was always tough. It's hard to say goodbye. One of my trips to Africa, I was in Nairobi, Kenya, and we were staying at a guest house. And there was a young man who was the gatekeeper. He'd open the gate. He'd get taxis for us if we wanted to go downtown. He'd open the gate and let us out. He'd open the gate and let us in. And one day, he, he, had a, he wasn't at the gate. He was up by the guest house. He had a blanket on the sidewalk. And it had a lot of 
tourist type of souvenirs, wood carvings and jewelry and painting and things like that. And I, I already had everything I was planning on taking home, but he told me that it was his uncle's business, but he was working it to make a little money because he wanted to go to school. And he said, do you have any clothes that you would trade because I need to have nicer clothes to be able to go to school? So I went down to my room, and I got some shirts and pants and a pair of shoes and came up, and we worked out a trade, and he was happy, and I was happy, and I went down to my, my room, and I got ready to put the souvenirs in the suitcase, and I, I had more clothes in the suitcase. And I thought, man, I'm going to go home, and I'm, I've got a closet full of clothes. i got dressers full of clothes. So I just picked up pretty well everything I had, took it back to him, and I said, hey, these aren't for trade. This is a gift. I just want you to be able to go to school, and I hope this helps. I wish I could describe to you the look on his face. You would have thought that I gave him $10,000 instead of some used clothes. I, I, I can't describe. I don't have the words to describe the look on his face, but I can describe to you how that look made me feel because... When I saw the look on his face, I thought, man, if Delta would let me get away with it, I would fly home in my boxer shorts tomorrow. I would give him the clothes off my back. It felt that good. The next day, we packed up, and we were leaving, and he wasn't at the gate. I was really disappointed because I wanted to see him one more time, but he wasn't there. So our taxi pulls out, and we're going down the road, and I just happened to look over to my left, And here he came running down the side road, and he's waving his arms and saying, wait, wait, wait. And I I tapped the taxi driver, and I said, stop, stop. And it's hot in Nairobi. The windows were already down. He came running up, and he didn't hardly slow down. He just kind of dives into the window, and he took both of my hands, and he looked me right in the eyes with this big smile, and he said, if I don't see you again here, I'll see you in heaven. If I don't see you again here, I'll see you in heaven. Heaven means we don't have to say goodbye. There will be no more goodbyes in heaven. We will be able to be with each other forever. Because of that, when we stand at a a cemetery, after we've lost someone that we love, who belongs to Jesus, we don't have to say goodbye. It's simply see you later. And one day we'll be together again in heaven. Heaven's going to be a permanent place. And the last picture is heaven will be a a Jesus place. It's going to be wonderful to see the saints of old and our family and friends. But my guess is that when we get to heaven and we realize we're in heaven, and it is better than anything that we could have ever imagined. And, and as much as we think we're going to want to see our, our grandparents, our parents, or friends, or, or Peter, or Paul, or King David, or whoever we think, man, I'm, that's the first person I'm going to talk to, I don't believe that will be the case. I believe that when we realize that we're in heaven, the only face that we will want to see is the face of Jesus. Because we'll know No matter who we are, we don't deserve to be here. It's only because of Jesus that we're here. See, that's the best part of Jesus' response to the thief on the cross. He said, today 
you will be with me in paradise. C.S. Lewis once wrote that when we get to heaven, there will be three things that amaze us. First, that we're there. Because we will know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I don't deserve to be here. The second thing that will amaze us is who is there. You look around and think, oh, how did he make it? <laughs> how did she make it? Man, I'm, that's shocking. But we saw the outside. Jesus saw the heart. And he said the third thing that will amaze us is who's not there. Because, again, we saw the outside. Jesus saw the heart. And I love that. We will be truly amazed, that third thing, that we're there. And that time, at that time, no matter who we are, no matter how good we thought we were, we will know we don't deserve to be there. It's only because Jesus made it possible. He did the work. He made the sacrifice. He paid our price. And that's why the work of Christ matters. It matters today. It matters tomorrow. It matters for eternity. Let me just wrap up by, uh, I know you're doing the Core 52, and, and I've kind of touched on a little bit of what this week is about, but I know there's some more aspects. And I just want to wrap up by addressing uh, something in the Core 52. Uh, Jesus came to earth, and he lived and died so that we could have eternal life. He did the work. He paid the price. And I've been in ministry for 43 years now, and I have seen a lot of people and heard a lot of people, and I've been engaged in a lot of debates that turn into arguments over doctrine or beliefs. And I've got to the point in my life where I I just really don't want to debate and argue much anymore. Because a lot of the debates and arguments just cause division, and we're supposed to be unified. There are so many things that we can get dogmatic about and claim that we know the whole mind of God when in reality, our understanding of the mind of God is like going to the ocean and getting a cup of ocean water and claiming that we have the whole ocean. We just have a little, little bit. And I don't claim to know the mind of God. I just have this tiny, tiny fraction of understanding of the things of God. And I never claim to be the smartest guy in the room. I admit that what I know for sure about God is that, that little cup of water in the ocean. But here's what I believe, and here's why I teach about two things. One is about salvation. You see, I, I hear people debate about what saves us all the time. We, we can ask, we can debate, we can argue about what saves us. And we can try to pinpoint it to one event, one, one thing And I I believe that if we start really focusing on what saves us, we're asking the wrong question. See, the right question is, who saves us? Jesus is the one who saves. Again, he's the one that did the work. He paid the price. So we simply need to receive the gift that he paid for. And the process for receiving that gift is to allow Jesus to be both our Savior and our Lord. And when I was a kid, I grew up in church, and I'd hear Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And I thought, well, they're both kind of the same thing, aren't they? And they're not. The word Savior means Jesus is the one who saves us. 
He saves us from going to hell so we can go to heaven. And that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? We want Jesus to be our Savior because we want to go to heaven. But that word Lord, that basically means boss. And we can't claim Jesus as our Savior and not allow Him to be our Lord, the one who's in control. And if we accept Jesus as our Savior, then whatever He says, we do. We don't have the right to say, well, I don't like that part. I think I'm going to do it another way. No, He's the boss, not me. He's the boss, not you. If He says we need to repent, we repent. If He says we need to get baptized, you get baptized. We don't argue. We don't debate it. We just do it. And so salvation comes to knowing that Jesus is the one who makes our salvation possible. The second issue that gets covered in the Core 52 is eternal security. Is it possible to lose our salvation? That's a pretty interesting question, isn't it? And man, there's a lot of debate and arguments about that. So let me just get it out there. You want... You, you want to know what I believe about that? Kind of same thing. I don't know. I can make an argument both ways. I really can. I can argue, yes, you can lose your salvation. I can argue, no, you can't. And use scripture for both. But here's the deal. It's not up to me. It's not my call. That's God's call. And when you look through scripture, you don't want to look through scripture to find a loophole. And really, it doesn't matter so much whether that's yes or no. We just stay faithful. There wasn't a verse given, hey, this is a loophole, so you can walk away from your faith and still go to heaven. No, that that isn't what Scripture says at all. Scripture says that, that we are to be faithful till death. And so if Jesus is our Savior and he's our Lord, we just need to follow him. Why would we ever want to not follow him? Knowing that he is the one who paid the price. He left heaven and came to earth. He left being the creator to be part of the created. He left angels who worshipped him to spend time with people who hated him, spit on him, and crucified him. He died on a cross, and three days later he conquered death, and he did all of that for you and me so that we can spend eternity in heaven with him. So his work matters. What we have to decide today individually is how much does it matter to me? Does it matter enough for me to say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior? And does it matter enough for us to say, I want you to be my Lord? You're the boss. You're in charge. You say it, I'll do it. No questions asked. The work of Jesus matters. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this time that we've had to just spend some time in your word. And I pray, Father, that you would remind us over and over of how much you love us. God, you show that in so many ways, but the greatest display of your love was when you allowed Jesus to come and live his life, and give his life for us. Father, I thank you for what he did for us. And I pray that we would respond, that we would be faithful, 
that we would not just live to keep the rules, but we would live in such a way that we want to walk close with you every day. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that because of him, that it's possible for us to have eternal life in that perfect place called heaven. God, help us to live our lives in a way that honors him. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.